Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. This is going to be the third and final message in our Imagine series based on the movie I Can Only Imagine about the life of Bart Miller. And at the beginning of this series, we talked about how Jesus rooted his identity in being a loved son of God. Because Jesus lived out his identity that God gave him, he was propelled into the purpose that God had for him. And all of us, at one time or another, have lived out an identity other than that being a child of God. Some of you may have placed your identity in your job. You may have placed your identity in who your family is, or in your community, or even what other people have said about you. You have taken what other people have said about you and made that part of your identity for the good and for the bad. Some of us have even identified ourselves based on a sin that has ruled over us at some point in our life. We've always looked at, at a, maybe looked at a sin and, and based our self-image um, on that. But let, us re, let me remind all of us here today that when we place our identity on anything other than Jesus, we are in need of this thing called redemption. And redemption means to restore something that is either lost, stolen, or lacking. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as, clearly, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the Apostle Paul here shows that Jesus in his humanity was how God intended all of mankind to be like from the beginning. Jesus is the perfect man. He lived the perfect life when he was on this earth. And that's why the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam, the actual prototype of what humanity was supposed to look like was seen in the life and ministry of Jesus when he walked this earth. And the Bible makes it clear that if you want to be restored to God, if you want to be redeemed from the, the slaver's block, what the, the way the Bible describes it, that we are all slaves to sin, and he pulls us off that slaver's block. If you want to be restored to the God who made you, that you need to walk as Jesus walked. And you might ask, how is that possible? How did Jesus, through his life and through his word, show us the personality of God? We're going to find out today in Matthew 5, verse, or chapter 5, verse 2, as I set up this section of Scripture, this section of Scripture is called the Beatitudes. And we went through a whole sermon series a few years ago about this. The beautiful attitudes of Jesus. And it's the beginning of a larger part of Scripture that's referred to as a Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gave this sermon to his followers to teach them what it means to become the person that God has made them to be. Or in other words, to become restored to bring it back to the pattern that God had planned from the beginning. And this section of Jesus' teaching is made up of eight statements that reveals how God describes someone who is blessed. And we hear the word blessed thrown around every day, but most specifically our culture identifies a blessing as something that you are given or something that, that happens to you. For example, if you're at work and somebody gives you a little bit extra money as a bonus or as a tip or, or anything like that, we say, well, we were blessed with some money. If you are given a child 
as a married couple, you may consider that to be a blessing in your life in saying that I have been blessed. Or maybe some of you wouldn't say that if you have teenagers. If you have a spouse, the Bible says you are blessed, whether it feels like it or not. You are blessed with that spouse. All of us have a desire to be blessed because we have this idea that it means that we have something that we didn't have previously. And while that is true, even of what Jesus is about to describe, it doesn't look the same way as we might imagine it in our lives sometimes, what the biblical idea of blessing is. And here's what Jesus says when he describes a blessed person. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, are, who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and say all kinds of false evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is the reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that as we wrap up this series on, on I Can Only Imagine, that we can see this idea of redemption very clearly in our own lives and see the potential for redemption in the lives of others. Father, this, this series and your word is not just for us. It is for those who don't know you. So help us to, as we study the Beatitudes and these beautiful attitudes of Jesus this morning, help us to see it, not to only apply it to ourselves, but see the potential to see it applied in others as they surrender their hearts to Jesus. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now Matthew 5 talks a lot about being blessed. And this word blessed in the Greek, which is meirkios, literally means to be in an enviable position. It means to be, when people look at you, that they have an, a sense of envy about your life. It means that you are in a position of incredible favor and grace within your relationship with God. In other words, those who have received this incredible grace of God through salvation are given the enviable position of eternal life. And thus, no matter what else is going on in their life, it doesn't matter if they're living in a cardboard box behind the grocery store, that they are seen as a blessed person because they have this assurance of where they are going when they die. And one of the big ideas that we see in this section of God's Word is that Jesus wanted His disciples then and us now to realize God's in God's kingdom... A blessing is not something we are necessarily given. It is a state that we live in right now. We live in a state of blessing. And if Jesus is a perfect example of how God intended man to be, the Beatitudes are Jesus' definition of who God intends us to be. 
Living blessed is simply, the, is simply a result of a life walked in the footsteps of Jesus. You could have nothing material in this life, but if you have Jesus, and because you have Jesus, you're blessed. If you have lost a loved one in this life, but you have Jesus, and because you have Jesus, you are blessed. You may be persecuted for your faith and overlooked because of your convictions or mocked by your friends because you choose to believe in Christ, but you have Jesus. And because you have Jesus, you are blessed. And today's message is going to look a little different than the past few weeks. As we walk through these different statements, I want us to explore a few more truths now that we understand what it means to be blessed in the eyes of God. Jesus first starts out by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this opening statement by Jesus sets the tone for his entire Sermon of the Mount. If not his entire ministry, his entire message, and his entire life, Upon this earth. If you do not live with humility before God, you cannot live with mercy toward others. Jesus will further explain this if you continue reading within the Sermon of the Mount. Now, think about this for a moment. When you receive a bill, say that it's over $200 in the mail, that says you have to pay this immediately. Pay this immediately or we're sending you collections. Pay this immediately or we're going to take you to court. You have to pay this right now. And if you only have $100 in your bank account, there are two things you're immediately aware of. You are aware of what you cannot afford and you are aware of what you need. And when Jesus gives us the invitation for a lifestyle of being poor in spirit, he is saying that in every day we must approach God being aware of two things things. Number one, we must approach God fully aware that we have nothing to offer Him. It's not like you can give God something that He doesn't already have. It's not like you are offering God this talent when He's the one that gave it to you in the first place. You have nothing to give to God. We have nothing that will enrich Him in any way. And number two, we must approach God fully aware that he has everything we need. There is nothing on this planet that you can come to God saying, God, if I just had this, I would be happy. He says, son, daughter, I already have this for you. I am everything you need. When we begin our day with these two truths, we place ourselves in a position for God to continue redeeming our lives. We no longer are trying to restore ourselves, but we relinquish control so that God can do what God can only do. Then Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it's easy to read this and assume that Jesus is simply speaking about mourning and sadness due to some particular circumstance we're going through. However, he is speaking more about an awareness of our condition apart from God a mourning sinfulness and brokenness, which sadness and circumstances are a result of. And when we mourn our own brokenness and the brokenness of our world, not, we, we mourn this not to be crippled by guilt, but to recognize the power of God's grace over our lives and the power that He gives us to be free from this sin. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles. Some of us feel like our troubles are just overwhelming. It feels like it's a, just a big blanket over us and we, and we cannot see the sun. But Paul, who was in prison when he wrote this, locked in a musty cell where there was no light, he said, for our light and momentary troubles. Amen. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Listen to his solution. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but as what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary. As you look around the room right now, everything you see here is temporary. A thousand years from now, I seriously doubt this building will be standing. These chairs will be, in, it will be just look just as good as they do today, or that I will be here. It's temporary. But what is unseen, God's kingdom, is eternal. When we mourn, we recognize that God is above it all. And if we lift our eyes to Him, we will be comforted. And that means a lot for us today who are grieving loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord. When I'm working in the ER and I'm treating a sick child, sick sick children can be some of the most challenging patients that we deal with. They don't understand that they have to sit still. They don't understand that some of the things we have to do hurt. Shots hurt. Needles hurt. We know that. And so, but you cannot reason with a child to stay still to, to get through any of this. I mean, I can offer them a sticker. I can offer them a sucker. I can offer them a stuffed animal or their favorite toy. And sometimes that will distract them, but usually not. However, when you can finally let a parent take them in their arms, that child's whole world changes when they get to burrow their face in their mom's armpit or let their mom hug them tight. Everything seems better. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You can try the things of this world to bring you comfort. But as Christians, we need to be that little child and exercise our faith. And when we get overwhelmed and when the whole world seems to be coming against us, we need to learn to bury our head in God's chest and get the real comfort that our soul needs during these times of trial. Jesus continues by saying, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now to be poor in spirit is an inward understanding of our humility before God, that we have a great need for Him. However, meekness is an outward expression of our humility before God so others can see our great need for God. This is completely contrary to the way our world operates and completely contrary to what popular psychology would tell you. And people throughout history have done whatever it takes, usually to the detriment of others, to build themselves up and improve their appearances before the world. But Jesus showed us a different way. Jesus, our second Adam, our our true example of biblical manhood and humanity, laid down all appearances and allowed himself to be crucified on our behalf. 
And denying himself worldly praise and exaltation, Christ's example of meekness allows you and I to know the truth of the Gospel. I can only imagine what God would do with us if we lived in meekness to allow Him to be glorified. A.W. Tozer writes in his book, The Pursuit of God, that Jesus calls us to His rest, and meekness is His method. The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long decided that the esteem of this world is not worth the effort. The rest Christ offers is the rest of meekness, the blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and we cease to pretend. It will take some courage at first, but the needed grace will come as long as we learn that we are sharing in this new and easy yoke with the strong Son of God Himself. Jesus is meant to carry that load. And those are some great thoughts on the meaning of what it means to be meek. Jesus continues when He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When we're hungry and thirsty, whether it be physically or spiritually, we are reminded of our need for something outside of ourselves. That's the purpose of hunger, to tell us that we need to go and do something to take care of this. And whether it means we're hungry physically and we need a sandwich, or we're hungry, hungry spiritually and we need to spend time with God, hunger is there to remind us of our need for something outside of ourselves. And the best test of a Christian's spiritual health is this. What are you spiritually hungry for? Now, I know some of you are taking this literally and you've already answered, well, I'm actually kind of physically hungry now and I need you for you to stop preaching so I can get over to Sunflower and get, get lunch. You've got to beat the Baptists, right? But in all seriousness, what are you hungry for? What do you chase to fulfill yourself? Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For as we mentioned last week, obedience to God is what we should be hungry for, because then we will be filled. So I would ask you, do you crave a life that pleases God more than anything? Is your whole focus on doing God's will, even if it doesn't match what your hopes and dreams might be? That's a great spiritual test for us to take every day of our lives, especially when we make big decisions. In the next line, Jesus states, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And I want to stop for a moment and note there's a distinction between grace and mercy. Grace is not getting what we do deserve, but mercy is getting what we do not deserve. Let me say that again because it's, it's, a, little, it's a little complex in the way that it's, it's written here. Grace is getting what we do grace is not getting what we do deserve but mercy is getting what we do not deserve it is by grace that we are saved since Jesus has paid the price for what we have deserved and we deserve death followed by an eternity of separation from God in a place called hell it is by mercy that he gives us another gift the privilege of a personal relationship with God Therefore, we must be a people who share the grace of Jesus 
and invite Jesus into the mercy of a relationship with God. You see, Jesus didn't save us and then just go away to heaven and leave us. Jesus saved us and then He wants to fill us with Himself. The grace was Him saving us. The mercy is Him coming to live with us. And that's what the whole Christian is supposed to, the whole Christian life is supposed to be like. Jesus then says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is a simple, but it's a very profound statement. Jesus is essentially asking his audience to examine their motives in life. If we're to drill down to the absolute question this statement is asking, it would be this. Whose kingdom are you building? Whose life are you living? Whose plans are you working to fulfill? Whose will are you to follow? Are you saying to God, my will be done or your will be done? If you can't answer a simple, yes, God, it's your will, your kingdom, your plans, your dreams, and I want to see happen, without your answer dying the death of a thousand equivocations, saying, well, yeah, God, I want your will, but if there's any but in there, I challenge you to reorder your thinking away from yourself and back to God. Because when you're in God's will, there's absolute safety. You have all the promises of the Bible ready and willing to be made manifest in your life. But if there are buts in there, that's when you start getting into dangerous territory. And that just gives an open window for the devil to mess with your life. And the answers to those will show your true heart focus. Is it God's will for you or your will for you? The next three verses will condense together and read, Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted, and blessed are the slanders, the people who are slandered. And I can't read these verses without seeing a picture of the cross. Now to the Romans, the cross was a failed symbol, or was a symbol of a failed revolution. To the Jews, hanging on a tree meant you were cursed, which is the opposite of being blessed. So as Jesus was hanging on the cross and everyone was looking upon him, they would have seen a complete failure and a cursed person. On top of that, Jesus had not even sparked a revolution against the Romans that the Jews respected their Messiah to do. When we think of a movement bringing redemption to a country and its people, we don't often think of one that turns the other cheek. But that's what Jesus did when he spoke of his kingdom. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew he was embodying the cultural symbol of a failed movement. He was persecuted because of the message he taught and he lived out. They even, he even had insults hurled at him when he died for this very people who were hurling the insults at him. Yet Jesus still chose to be obedient to the journey placed before him by God and trust that this is what it was meant to live a life that was blessed. One of the big ideas I want us to leave with this morning is that you see all these Beatitudes are our trail markers on this journey toward redemption. If living like Jesus is what it looks like to be redeemed, then these eight statements are our indicators of where we are in this journey. 
So I would ask you this morning, with the Holy Spirit being powerful in this room, let the Holy Spirit ask you, are you humble? Are you a person who is repentant? Are you meek? Are you actually pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Are you merciful? And are you obedient? These are the kind of people that God can change the world with. And these are the kind of people who live under His blessing and live under His favor. These are the people who live enviable lives. And you might think this is completely opposite of how the world would have you live and how you would interact with those around you. And you might think it's foolish and unrealistic. <laughs> the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose the foolish things of the world, the shame and the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways make no sense to our fleshly human minds. But His way is the right way. And only God could turn the cross, this cultural symbol of failure, this cultural symbol of the ultimate shame a person could have, and turn it into a symbol of victory. Because this is what God does. And this is what God wants to do in you and in the people around you. He wants you to be redeemed. He wants you to take the broken pieces of your life, the ones that are failure in the eyes of the world, and then give them to God to make something beautiful out of it. The Beatitudes are trail markers on the journey of redemption. They're like the mile markers on the interstate of life. They are like the, the notches in the doorway of a house that shows the growth of a little child as they grow up into adulthood. We can use these markers to confirm we're heading in the right direction and toward our final destination. And so, Holy Spirit, I would ask this morning that you would take these Beatitudes and apply them to our life today to see if we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling or living a life that is drifting and without purpose.